0: Good evening, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Hopkins, and this is episode 100. Pretty exciting. Um, When I started the podcast in April of 2022, I really didn't think we would have 100 episodes. My original intention was simply to read my book, Revelation, Authentic Power in an Overwhelming Universe, and record it to the the, the podcast in audio form. Um, I've had a lot of requests to produce that book in audiobook format, and my attempts at producing it ha- were were being frustrated. Uh, the production team uh, continued to run into roadblocks, and we would submit it, and it would come back. This wasn't right. We'd fix that, and then something else wasn't right, and and the entities that take it to uh, Apple or Audible or the other audio book companies, we're never happy with it. So <clears throat> I think the fact is I simply don't have the voice for audiobook. And I think they wanted us to hire someone professional to make it sound more studio quality professional. And, and that wasn't really what we were looking for. So the podcast gave me the opportunity to just kind of have a discussion with anyone who would listen and answer the questions that had been emailed to me, messaged to me, that had come uh, up in group meetings where I'd been invited to speak as the author of the book and and in studies that I was invited to lead. And I thought it was a great opportunity to kind of uncover a bunch of the material that had gotten edited out of the book when I wrote it, it really didn't become as much that as just the chance to answer some questions and go over the material again in a, in a, a bit of a different way than I had done in the book. Um, there's still lots and lots of material from the book of Revelation I could start over at the beginning and go through again, and in fact, in the last year, uh, since the last time I spoke about the book, I've learned even more, and my perspective on a couple of those things in the Book of Revelation have changed. Not in anything significant, but I've I've grabbed a couple of tidbits here and there that that have proven to me to be better insight than what I had when I wrote the book. So, at some point, I'll probably revise the book, come out with a second edition, or something of that nature. But for now, the, the podcast keeps me busy, and 100 episodes is far more than I dreamed I would do. I thought we would finish the book of Revelation in 40 or 50 episodes. Uh, ultimately, it was 70. And then I really kind of figured I would shut the podcast down and just let it stand out here on the internet as the book Spoken. Uh, but so many people said, no, don't stop now, go on, that we picked another target, the book of Job. Friends of mine said, well, you you picked Revelation. Yeah, why not take Job? Take the second hardest book in the Bible and make sense of that. And that's really what we've tried to do is, as we did with the book of Revelation, make Job more accessible and help you understand the message to it is is really simple Um Its purpose is really simple. It's wisdom literature. And and as you read it, you participate in the story. You're a part of what's happening in Job, and it's supposed to affect you in that way. So it's been a joy. I don't know what we'll do next. Um, If you have input, you are welcome to email me at revelationpowerbook uh, at gmail.com. Revelationpowerbook.com at gmail.com. And I'll take all suggestions. Um, somebody's asked me to do Ephesians in the New Testament. Uh, that's not a bad idea. It's not my forte. But at the same time, of the letters of Paul, I think Ephesians and Colossians are the two that are most accessible. And so it's it's not a place that I mind starting. Uh, some have asked me to take on the book of John from the book, from the New Testament. And as you, if you've read the book, you know, I started my, my ministry career kind of specializing in the book of John and in Johannine writings. And that got me into first, second, and third John, and then into Revelation. And then I got fascinated with the purpose of the book of Revelation. And I kind of stayed there. So, John is certainly uh, a possibility. Um, my pastor has kind of inspired me. He's he's been preaching his way through the Elijah and Elisha cycles, and he skipped some things that I think are are really cool and and kind of crucial uh, in that in those cycles. And so it's possible I might jump over there for a bit. I think. I want to go back to the New Testament. I'd kind of like to go back and forth, old and new, and then back old and new. So I think I'm going to go back to the New Testament. Um, but the Elijah-Elisha cycle thing captures my attention. It wouldn't take a long time, and it's, it's a part of the Bible that I have always deeply enjoyed. Uh, the Jacob store, I mean, the Joseph cycle... Uh, the Elijah cycle, the Elisha cycle, those things just really appeal to me. So, we'll see where we go from here. If you if you have a, a, a preference, why let me know. But tonight we're going to finish the book of Job. That means chapters 41 and 42, because we've got two to go. They're not hard. Um, they're very straightforward, really. Except that chapter 41 is about a mythical creature. So. That's a little tricky. Let's see what it says. Chapter 41 of Job, beginning in verse 1. God talking to Job. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fishhook, or tie down its tongue with a rope? Could you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put a leash on it for the young women in your house? Will traders barter with you for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never try it again. Any hope of subduing the thing is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, his strength, his graceful form, who can strip off his outer coat, who can penetrate his double coat of armor, who dares open the doors of his mouth ringed about with fearsome teeth, His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together, each so close to the next that no air can pass between. They're joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze, and flames dart from his mouth. Strength resides in his neck. Dismay goes before him. The folds of his flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. His chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When he rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his thrashing. The sword that reaches him has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron he treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows don't make him flee, sling stones are like chaff to him. A club seems to him but a piece of straw. He laughs at the rattling of the lance. His undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. He makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a glistening wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. Well, that's interesting. In the previous chapter, he spoke to Job about the hippopotamus, the behemoth. And and though he casts him as existing in the Jordan, we don't believe hippopotami ever existed in the Jordan River they existed in the Nile River which isn't far it's in that region of the world and the people of Israel knew the people of Egypt and knew each other's creatures and and certainly knew of the African hippopotamus but um, for it to exist in the Jordan I don't think there's any evidence that it ever did but in the book of Job it's cast as being one of those creatures that is bigger than Job. It's an earthbound creature that's bigger than Job. Now in chapter 41, Leviathan. And the Leviathan is a dragon. He's a sea monster that breathes fire and snorts smoke. It's interesting because in the Old Testament, there are times when the Bible says that God breathes fire and, and smoke comes from his nostrils. The Leviathan becomes kind of a type to represent the wrath and the fury of God. But he's a mythical creature. There's no such giant lizard beast with scales like iron and fire coming out of its face. It is the Hebrew version of the mythical dragon that is interestingly present in all the ancient civilizations of the world. All of them have this this dragon character. It's so common that it makes people wonder, where'd this come from? Were there ever really dragons? We just haven't found evidence of them? It's that creature that captures the imagination of everyone. And, And God's description of Leviathan to Job is, is horrifying he's undefeatable unbeatable uncrackable your worst weapons are like straw and sticks to him your most ferocious attack absolutely ineffective your largest army he will burn to the ground with one breath from his mouth he is the worst nightmare you could ever dream He's a mythological beast, so big, so mighty, so evil, so overpowering that to stand against him is hopeless. You can't have any effect on him. He's he's the the worst thing you can dream of. That's why that's why God uses a mythical creature here. He's the stuff of nightmares. But God says I control him. <laughs> I control him. And and you can read this chapter in in the vein that God's being absolutely honest, that this is an absolutely mythological creature. Can you defeat him? No. Can you touch him? No. Can you do anything to affect him? No. He's a nightmare. He's not real. He'll come at you in the middle of the night when you can't defend yourself and you can't touch him. That's how nightmares work. He's a bad dream, he's a bad vision, he's a horrible thought, he's that guilt, that shame that hangs over you and you can never seem to work through it or get out of it. See, you can read this as God being straight up that this is a myth that represents all the evil that that attacks you and you can't beat, or you can look at it as being literal. It's a dragon, maybe God owns a literal, literal dragon. Can you take him home as a pet? Put him on a leash for your girls to drive around? No, no, but God controls him. Whether he's seen as a literal mythical creature, a nightmare, a bad dream, a bad thought, the threats that come at us in our own minds, no matter what shade you paint him in, from from imagined to a real myth, even to an actual creature. He's too much for us. And God says, but I control him. But I have dominion over him and everything else in this earth, Job. Everything in this world is under my control. And that's a huge statement if you see Leviathan in this whole range of uh, this whole spectrum of possibilities. Those those thoughts that haunt you, Job, I'm God over those. Those fears that keep you from, from getting out and doing what you should, I'm God over those. Those nightmares that threaten you in the middle of the night with terror that's beyond your comprehension, uh, I'm God over those. That poor self-concept, that keeps you frozen that you can't even seem to shoot an arrow into and and begin to get out of your way. I'm I'm God over that. You see, Job, you can't even you can't even deal with a hippo. I'm God over the dragons. I'm God over the worst of things. I'm God over the terrors in the night. I'm God over everything. Chapter 42 Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And as a result, I despise myself, and I repent here in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, catch this, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. And right there you're supposed to kind of say, it wasn't God who brought it on him. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys and he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karenhapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man with a full life. So the final chapter does two things. It, it gives Job the chance to speak. And Job replies to the Lord and says, I see that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And you're right. I spoke of things I didn't know. I didn't understand things too wonderful for me to know you said you're going to listen I will speak, I will question you and you will answer well my ears had heard of you but now my eyes have seen you and as a result I'm crushed I despise myself and right now and here I repent in dust and ashes and that's the end of the speaking kind of interesting isn't it Job is given the chance here in this chapter to repent. God doesn't have to answer. Job is in the right place. Job's heart is right again. Job says, oops, I was wrong. I was really wrong. And I'm sorry. And I repent. The word in Hebrew for repent means to turn around and go the other way. Going back now, back to where God and I were solid last, back to where our relationship was what it should have been, back before the complaining, back before the whining, back before the questioning, back before kind of slipping on my trust and getting my heart back that I had before it all. After the Lord had spoken to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. See, this is what I was warning you about all the way through the book. Their concept of God was wrong. And the things they said about God were wrong. And God is holding them to account for the fact that They lied about him. That's what you didn't tell the truth about me means. They lied about him. And he defends Job as having said the right things about him. Job didn't lie about me. You did. Now, it's true that Job didn't have God figured out. And Job's repented of that. And because he's repented of that, God has forgiven him. And look, now God treats him as though Job never got any of it wrong. That's the power of repentance. Once Job has repented, God goes to his friends and says, Job never failed me, but you guys did. Well, Job did fail him. But, but God's forgotten that because of Job's repentance. God's wiped that slate clean and doesn't hold it against him anymore. If you ever needed a clear picture of how God's redemption and forgiveness works, here it is in the book of Job. You lied to me. Job didn't. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to Job's house, and there sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the, Tem- Eliphaz the Temanite. I don't know why in that sentence I can't get that right. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. It's interesting that when Job comes to repentance, he does that out of his own heart now God has certainly put him in his place but Job's accountable and says oh you're right I was an idiot I repent I'm sorry that will not happen again I will grieve for my own failure that's the whole sackcloth and ashes is a a sign of grieving I will grieve for the stupidity that I brought before you. Then God goes to his friends and says, you guys' forgiveness depends on that guy. Your re- your repentance, your forgiveness depends on Job. If Job will forgive you, I will. But whatever Job prays, I'm going to honor that prayer. So they have to pray that Job, they have to hope that Job doesn't pray for lightning to strike them or for them to be transported to Madagascar. Because God's really saying, you go to Job and sacrifice there in repentance, and you have Job pray for you, and whatever Job prays, I'll honor. And Job forgives his friends. And Job prays that God will forgive his friends. Job's learned a lot in this process, hasn't he? He's gone from this whiny, complaining, justifying, not seeing God in the proper light guy. And though he still doesn't see God in the totally proper light, he's become this person who now forgives his friends, restores his own relationship with God, and prays that God will restore his relationship with the others. After Job had prayed, Verse 10, after Job had prayed for his friends, after he'd forgiven them, after he'd cleaned all the slates, he's now straight with God, he's now right with his friends. After he'd done that, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who'd known him before came to his house and ate and feasted, they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. (laughs) And God doesn't feel it necessary to ever correct Job's misunderstanding about who hit him. God just leaves him with that error in his mind. It's really interesting that you and I, people that we are, always want to correct error, especially when it's someone else's. I attend a Bible study once a week where I just said last night at Bible study, we wouldn't allow error here. There are too many diverse perspectives in that place. There are too many guys with strong personalities and and deep biblical understanding that if someone brought us real heresy, most of us wouldn't stand up and say, I don't think so. We'll discuss each other's perspectives and say, well, maybe... Maybe so, but maybe this, or maybe that. Have you considered this? I like it this way. You don't have to like it that way. You can be wrong if you want to be. We joke with each other and we we take the things of the Bible, the Word, and we turn them over and we look at them from every angle because I don't think God's afraid of people diving into His Word and trying to learn the most that they can from it. And we've got people with decades a biblical study experience under their belt. And we've got guys that have only been Christian for a couple of years. And we're all learning together. We wouldn't let someone come in and say, well, we're sorry for all the trouble God brought on you. Job doesn't know any better. He's not going to scold them or correct them. He still thinks it's God. Who hit him. And God doesn't feel the need to disavow him of that delusion. Isn't that interesting? Job is the one who had to defend himself in this whole process. God doesn't feel the need to defend himself. He just lets Job think that he's the one that hit him. And you and I, the reader who know the whole story, or this one last time supposed to laugh and say it wasn't God that hit Job come on man it's kind of funny and I think it's meant to be kind of funny it's meant to remind you why the whole book is written the way that it is Job's relatives and his cousins they're just as ignorant as he was and it's kind of funny each one of them gave him a piece of silver, and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and there are two in each yoke, so he had 2,000 oxen and 1,000 donkeys. That's a lot of donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. Remember Job's wife? (laughs) This is another one of those things that if you're a Jewish person reading the story, you're going to remember. Oh, that wife of his, the wicked, unbelieving, why don't you just curse God and die, wife. She gets to have 10 more kids. <laughs> she gets hers in the end, right? Job gets blessed. He has 10 new children, and she has to bear every one of those kids again. So the first, I think there were 10 the first time. She had to bear them. Now she has to bear just as many more. In her old age, God just says, oh, you didn't think I could do this, did you? It kind of calls back to Abraham and Sarah. When Sarah laughs, when the angels from the road tell Abraham that he'll have a son, and they're like, why is your wife laughing? And she, from the tent, says, I didn't laugh. It kind of recalls that back. Now, she's not mentioned here, Job's wife, but she's part of the story that you and I remember. Every reader, every listener would remember her because she was so unrighteous, so bad to Job in the middle of his suffering to say, why don't you just curse God and die? My goodness, that doesn't sound like a wife, does it? And God says, why don't you just have 10 more children? (laughs) I love it. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Karen dash Hapuk. There's the name Karen from the Bible. All of you Karens who've gotten a bad name recently, when it's become fad to say, okay, Karen. And, and blame this poor name of Karen for all the bad things in the world. Uh, you're redeemed now because you're in the Bible. Nowhere in all the land were there found women, Karen, as beautiful as Job's daughter. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man with a full life and one of the most amazing stories to tell in the whole Bible God not only restored Job but he gave him back that fullness that, that depth that richness of life and Job was never tested again I wonder what The Satan thought about that. That frail, scrawny Job, I just about had him. But but he didn't fail the test. And in the end, you have to admit that even though he, he really takes Job to task, God saved him. God didn't let that stuff go on to the point that it became utter failure in Job's life. Elihu stepped in, then God stepped in. Interestingly, Elihu disappears from the story. He's not indicted as one of the friends who who told lies about God. Interestingly, he's not even mentioned. And there are scholars who who infer that Elihu was Jesus, or that Elihu was the angel of the Lord, that Elihu is some, somehow God present in the situation. I think that's a step too far. I think Elihu represents the youth who look up to the older person and who are disappointed, who are the, that generation of hope that always comes after us, that says, we're going to be the generation that will do this better than you did it. And typically they are. Typically, they do better than their parents' generation. Unless their parents have been faithless and raised a faithless generation, and then that generation carries their society further down the tube. Elihu represents that generation that wants to do better, that wants to walk closer to God, that wants to be more faithful. Praise God for that generation. They exist in our day, and I thank God for them. But Elihu isn't mentioned in this last chapter. he's, He's off the hook, probably because he's young. Job, having come to task, having come to repentance, having forgiven his brothers, is restored more richly than he was to begin with. God controls it all. The nightmares, the challenges, the problems, the pressures craziness God controls it all it is all under his dominion you and I are safe to admit our wrong to to repent when it's appropriate to ask God's forgiveness to offer forgiveness to our brothers and sisters and then to experience God's restoring power in our lives Are you at a place where you need restoring today? I sure do. Let's go from this moment forward seeking God's restoration in our lives. Seeking that full life that when our years are over, we can lay our head down to pass from this world and have the satisfaction that we lived. We lived a full life.